Welcome to Slaking Thirsts, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. Friends, good morning. Deacon Rich and I were talking this morning uh, during the, well, after the 8 o'clock Mass, just talking about how there's some weeks preparing for homilies as preachers where, like, the Lord, as you look through the readings, the Lord just, like, spotlights one particular part of a reading or this particular word or something like that, and you just kind of dig into that and prepare your homily based on that for the week. And then there's other weeks where you're just, like, like all over the place, and you have, like, at least for me, this whole week, I'm like, Lord, you're, there's, like, ten homilies brewing in my heart. I'm like, I'll preach all ten. Um, I don't think they're going to like it, but... Up until about two days ago, I still had 10 homilies in my heart. I'm like, all right, Lord, we've got to narrow this down. And he, he eventually did. So uh, the readings this week are just so rich. They are so, so rich. And, and instead of giving you my 10 homilies, I do want to encourage you, though, to go back and, and to kind of maybe pull out your Magnificat or pull out your Bible and look at these readings again. Just spend a little bit more time with them. That first reading from Jeremiah, to get the context of that reading, you duped me, O Lord, right? I let myself be duped. To understand what Jeremiah is getting at, this, this burning in his bones, this, this need to preach, you have to go back to, to Jeremiah 19, right? That's the previous chapter to see this, this wrenching, brutal message that the Lord is giving him to tell the people. So spend time there. Spend time with that responsorial psalm. My soul is thirsting for you, O Lord. My soul is thirsting. Or again, Paul's letter to the Romans. I mean, spend some time with his call to us, do not be conformed to this age. Be transformed. Man, if there's ever a message that we need in our church today, please, bishops, tell us to not be conformed to this present age. Amen? Amen? Amen. Amen. We need to be transformed. We need to be transformed. So, it was the gospel, though. It was the gospel where the Lord finally drew my attention. That's where I want to go. That's where I want to go. So the gospel that we have this weekend picks up directly from where we were last weekend, right? So we have Jesus traveling with his disciples to the region of Caesarea Philippi, and he asks them the question, who do people say that I am? Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets. But who do you say that I am? And it's Simon, of course, who, ch- who chirps up and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus turns to him, blessed are you, Simon, son of John. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my heavenly Father. And I say, you are Kepha. That's the Aramaic. You are rock, Peter. You are Kepha. And upon this Kepha, upon this rock, I will build my church. You might be wondering, where do we get the name Peter, right? Kepha is the Aramaic. Petros is the transliteration in Greek. It's where we get the word Peter. You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. That's pretty awesome. This is a high moment for Peter in his life, right? I am rock, I rock, right? I'm on the, I'm the foundation stone. And then like the next breath, the next breath, we have what we see here happening. Jesus is beginning to tell his disciples, his apostles, the battle strategy, if I can put it that way. He's telling them about the campaign that he's about to wage, that we're going to Jerusalem, and I plan to wage war upon hell and to invade death's fortress is really what he's telling them. Because you all realize, right, that when Jesus says that the gates of hell will not prevail 
against me, against this church. I think for many, many years I heard that as, many of us hear that as Jesus saying, don't worry guys, you know, I know things might get dark, but hell's not going to prevail in the church. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that the gates of hell, which are designed to keep things out, the gates of hell are not going to prevail. That heaven will smash through and invade the gates of hell. Heaven will break through the fortress and plunder the enemy's goods. That's what he's saying, right? So he's telling about this campaign he's going to wage. And how does he plan to do this? In the most bizarre means imaginable. Through suffering, by being rejected, by being reviled, by being taken, by dying, and by rising. And Peter, the rock, he does not understand this. And he rebukes the Lord. It's very violent. If you read it in the original Greek, the, the word is, is, it's as if he takes Jesus by the shirt. And it's as if he's shaking him. It's the same verb that shows up in the Garden of Gethsemane when the guards come and they take Jesus, this apprehension, this shaking. He takes Jesus and he tells him, God forbid, Lord, that this should happen to you. In other words, he's saying, this cannot be the way. This cannot be the way. There's got to be another way. We cannot be doing this. You can't possibly think that this is a winning strategy. And Jesus turns to him with power and says, get behind me, Satan. He just called him rock. And now he's calling him Satan. This is a low moment in Peter's world, right? Get behind me, Satan. Ho Satanas in the Greek, the accuser. You are a stumbling block to me, a scandalon. You are a stumbling block to me. And he says this. This is what I want to direct our attention to. You are thinking not as God does, but as human beings do. You are thinking not as God does, but as human beings do. Friends, this right here from the Lord, this is where I want us to pause and just kind of mind the riches of what Jesus is suggesting to us because he's telling us too, right, that how often you do not, you're not thinking how I think. You're thinking how all of you think. You're thinking in the, in the conditioned frame of the fallen world. You're thinking about what's humanly possible or a humanly strategy. You're not thinking the way I think. This is also why St. Paul says, put on the mind of Christ. Let your mind be renewed. When Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, the Greek is metanoiate, go beyond the mind that you have. We need a conversion of our mind, the way that we think about these things. So how, how does God think? How do we think? That's what we want to ask. And I'll state it very simply. And then we'll unpack it from there. But this is, this is the, here's the thesis statement of the homily, if you will. My honors English 10 teacher, she's somewhere very proud of me right now. God seems to think that the way of vulnerability is the best way. That it's the only way. And we tend to think that vulnerability comes at much too high a cost that it's too risky to really be vulnerable. Why do we think that? It's not because we're stupid or because we're gullible or bad, but it's because life, your life, my life, the life in this fallen world, in this place that we say we call it the, 
valley of tears, this life teaches us in so many ways, in a million different lessons, that it's just, it's not safe to be human in some ways. It's not safe to have a heart. It's not safe to have a heart. This fallen world isn't meant to love and honor and cherish and prize and esteem our hearts. This fallen world isn't where we were meant to be, though. Right? The natural habitat of the human heart isn't this fallen world. It isn't this place marked by violence and scapegoating and cruelty and indifference. This fallen world isn't the natural habitat of the human heart. Eden was the natural habitat of the human heart. Having a heart in this world is difficult. It's painful. Think of that line from the Wizard of Oz that hearts will only be practical until they, they'll only be practical when they are unbreakable. Life teaches us when we get hurt and disappointed and betrayed and let down and abandoned and rejected and set aside and when we get preferred to others and when we get overlooked, it's hard. And all of us, we all, all of us are born into a family line that's marked with sinfulness and woundedness. Every one of our family trees looks just like Jesus' family tree in the genealogy from Matthew. Right? Remember that Christmas Eve, so-and-so begot so-and-so, so-and-so begot so-and-so. That's Deacon Rich's favorite homily, her favorite gospel to preach. All the names. And he fools you into thinking that he knows Hebrew, right? Anyway. But in that family line, there is just so much sinfulness and woundedness and brokenness that gets passed down from generation to generation. And that's our story. Fathers, wounded fathers wounding their sons, wounded mothers wounding their daughters, and down it goes. And we all have moms and dads who are imperfect. This is not a judgment or a critique or a condemnation on any of you who are moms and dads. None of us have perfect parents. And the problem is for our little hearts is that we have hearts that we come into this world with a heart that's looking for the perfect love of God and we are confronted by the imperfect love of our mom and dad and siblings and friends and teachers and coaches and neighbors and cousins. We're confronted by the imperfect love of the people around us. We come into the world with a heart built for Eden, desiring Eden to be loved perfectly and cherished perfectly and honored perfectly and esteemed perfectly and reverenced perfectly and seen perfectly. And, and like this, these desires, these needs of our hearts, these needs and desires, these are not naive or childish. This is the deepest part of our heart. This is why we get frustrated when someone just overlooks us. This is why we get frustrated when people don't honor our person when people don't ask us questions that matter, when we just feel set aside. This rebellion in us that says, I'm not meant to be treated this way. It's an echo. John Paul II calls these experiences of our hearts echoes of the origin that we faintly, dis distinctly sort of remember. And they're also like prophetic fingers pointing to like the destiny that we're called to, that you will be and are meant to be loved and honored and cherished and seen and reverenced perfectly. And what ends up happening, we end up beginning to believe that love isn't trustworthy in our hearts with these desires. We begin to ac accuse our own hearts of saying, my heart is the problem. 
these desires, this, this childish, naive wanting to be loved so well. That's the problem. I need to shut that down and get realistic about people. This is why I think in our culture right now, this sort of growing movement of this sort of stoicism, this re- resurgence of this stoic mindset where I'm going to just shut it down. It's better and seemingly easier to have a heart that doesn't feel, that doesn't hope, that doesn't long, that doesn't desire than to have a heart that's vulnerable. Because we learn from so many teachers around us, so many experiences that love is risky, it's painful. Vulnerability is painful. The word itself, vulnerable, comes from the Latin root vulnus, which means wound or woundable, like a willingness, a capacity to be wounded. I mean, think about the moments in your life where you felt like you were most vulnerable. It was when you put yourself in a position to be hurt the most. And all of us could tell stories that would break all of our hearts about when our trust was betrayed, when our hearts were broken, when because of vulnerability, because we attached ourselves in love to something and it was ripped out, we suffered. I mean, seemingly silly, innocuous things going back to childhood, like when your first pet died that you were so attached to. And a part of your heart died, or when your best friend moved away and you faced that first day of school alone, or when you weren't picked for dodgeball in third grade, or when that girl in fourth grade made fun of you because of the glasses that you had, or when that friend in sixth grade suddenly turned on you and you were suddenly now on the outside of a friend group that she thought you were on the inside of, and then into high school and college years when people who once were your people who would text you and reach out to you, they no longer are reaching out to you, and or people who were so close to you that like, because of betrayal you have to cut them out of your life and you just feel like you're just living this sort of perpetual amputation. Or when you, when you dared to say something to somebody that was precious and scary and you said it anyway and then it wasn't received. Or when you had the the courage to share something very, very special, like a little trinket of your world, and it was made fun of. So what do we do? If you're, if you're anything like me, if you're anything like me, what you do is you build walls around your heart, around your world, around these places, these thick walls. You steal yourself behind these walls because being vulnerable It's just too scary. It's too risky. It's too painful. And so we conclude that there's just going to be stuff in me. There's stories that I carry. There's parts of me that nobody's going to get to see. Nobody's going to have access to. I can't let anybody get that close. I can't let anybody in like that again. I just can't let anybody have that big of a claim on my heart. Because what if they rip it out? then all of my guts come out with it. C.S. Lewis thought deep and long and hard about these things. The risk of suffering that comes with love. And he says this, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. 
Lock it up safe in the casket of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, and airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love, he says, is to be vulnerable. As I was spending time in these words from the gospel with Jesus, I I learned that the word that's used there by Jesus, that's recorded by Matthew, the phrase, whoever wishes to save his life, the connotation really in the Greek is whoever wishes to save his life, it has the connotation of building a wall around your life to protect yourself. Like, What Jesus is saying is, whoever builds walls around his life to protect himself will lose himself. Just like C.S. Lewis was saying. And what ends up happening is our hearts get lured into this trap by the enemy because he whispers this seduction of fear into our hearts to be afraid of being vulnerable, to be afraid of having yourself out there. He whispers fear he says, yeah, here's another brick, here's another brick, here's another brick. And we build the wall, and we think that we're protected. And yes, in some ways, it, in some ways, we can't possibly be just perpetually gushing and vulnerable and exposed to everybody. That's imprudent, and that's not safe for our hearts. But think about like a, like a, like a medieval castle surrounded by that thick wall, The medieval castle, this defense, protecting preciousness inside, it's vulnerable in one place, isn't it? Like there's a drawbridge to the castle wall where it lets the wall down and life can get in and life can get out. We have to be able to let people in. Peter in this gospel. He didn't want Jesus to risk vulnerability. He didn't want him to do this. He didn't want him to to go this way, this way of vulnerability, to suffer, to be wounded, to put himself out there, to be so exposed, to die. He wanted him to stay protected, defended. Jesus, let's think of another way. Let's pause. Let's strategize. Let's, there's got to be another way. But there is not another way, is what he's saying. That's not why he came. He is, Jesus is, as the incarnate Son of God, he is the very vulnerability of the Father's heart laid upon the altar of the world. He is the heart of the Father, given and put into our hands, exposed, defenseless, right? Made accessible to us. This is is why Jesus feels this imperative, I must go to Jerusalem. I must go this way of vulnerability. This is the only way to express the love that I have. And he's saying to us, he's saying to you and me, he's saying, follow me. Follow me. Let the walls come down. Take the risk. Think like me. Because if we do this, if we do this which seems insane to us, and let our walls come down, this is the other part of this gospel that's fascinating. In the Greek, it's not just simply, you will save your life. The actual word there is, you will beget your life. 
you will be reborn. Friends, I'm just convinced of this in my own walk with the Lord, in my walk with other people, that the greatest, the greatest things in life are on the other side of vulnerability. The greatest things in life are on the other side of vulnerability. My dear friend, Father Ryan Mann, he says this all the time, and it's so beautiful. He says these little places in our hearts where we are so scared to be vulnerable, so scared to let someone close, so scared to be seen, so scared to let the walls down, these little places in our hearts, he calls them these near occasions of communion. These places that if we take the risk, if you take the risk, you just might taste the most incredible love being loved in a place where you are convinced that you're not going to be loved. Friends, Jesus is naming it in the gospel for us this weekend. He's naming that there is a battle. There's a battle for our hearts. There's a battle always raging in you and me, these two competing voices. One voice saying, keep the walls up. It's not safe being human. It's not safe letting your heart be seen or known or exposed. Keep the walls up. And then another voice that's saying the opposite. He's saying, let the walls come down. It's okay to feel those sufferings. Those sufferings, united with me, they will take you someplace beautiful. They'll take you into communion. The way of vulnerability or the way of self-protection. From the manger, from the cradle to the cross, from the altar to your tongue, the Lord has chosen the way of vulnerability. And he's the only thing at this point is, will the bride reciprocate? He's holding nothing back. He never holds anything back. There's nothing ever contracepted from his heart. Everything is always given. The only question is, will the bride truly lift up her heart to receive? Amen.